If you jump the gun where you have a big spike, you're going to set yourself back. It's going to backfire. Oh, what does Dr. Anthony Fauci know about these things? Don't listen to him. Am I right, state of Georgia? No, it ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me. Jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Here I am. Yes, I'm stuck in the middle From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A., 98.7 in Santa Barbara, 93.7 in San Diego, 99.5 FM in Ridgecrest and China Lake. Also in Red Bluff and Redding, California on KFOI, Round Mountains KKRN, and Eureka's KGOE. In Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, and Eugene's KEPW. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU. Columbus, Ohio's WGRN, Palinville, New New York's WLPP. In Grand Rapids on WPRR, down in New Orleans on WHIV. Gallup, New Mexico's KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN. In Fayetteville, Arkansas on KPSQ. In Seattle on KODX. Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR. In Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM 950. KTNF. We also stream coast to coast and around the globe every day on the internets, even during pandemics. On the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, Deprogrammed Radio, and Detour Talk. Fine affiliates all, and that's just a few of them. Welcome to the Bradcast. Radio to quarantine by. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker. And all-around swell fellow, says me, from bradblog.com. We are here live with you uh, in studio today in the beautiful, if hauntingly empty, studios of KPFK in North Hollywood. Just a uh, skeleton crew here at best once again today. And uh, what do I got to start? Oh, breaking news. Of course, on our way over from, uh, from home to the studio Breaking news, Governor Brian Kemp of Georgia says businesses like gyms, barbershops, and hairstylists will be allowed to reopen Friday, April 24th. That is just a few days from today. Desi Doyen, what do you think of that? I think that that's insane and stupid, but hey, that's just me. Well, what what have you come to expect from Brian Kemp at this point of Georgia? <laughs> Good point. Uh, as if that's not stupid enough, theaters and restaurants will follow on Monday, April 27. Theaters and restaurants will be opened, apparently, in the great state of Georgia, Essentially, one week from today, kind of blows my mind. Uh, Max Burns on tw- on the Twitters uh, replied, says a shorter headline: Georgia Governor Kemp announces human sacrifices to begin April twenty fourth. Uh, just as COVID nineteen cases are finally beginning to plateau in some cities, some big cities, and along the coast, the coronavirus is catching fire in rural states across the American heartland, where there was a significant spike last week in cases. 
The bump in coronavirus cases is most pronounced in states without stay-at-home orders. There are, uh, well, at last check, I think eight of them, all run by Republican governors. Oklahoma, for example, saw a 53% increase in cases over the past week. That, according to data compiled by Johns Hopkins University. Over the same time, cases jumped 60% in Arkansas, 74% in Nebraska, 82% in Iowa. South Dakota saw a whopping 205% spike. And yet we're now looking at cases uh, at states uh, that have stay-at-home orders getting rid of them. Those uh, South Dakota statistics, by the way, include the extraordinary numbers coming from uh, Minnehaha County and specifically the hundreds of confirmed cases at the Smithfield pork plant. It is the largest single cluster of cases in the country, at least until uh, Georgia decided they wanted to get in on the action, I guess. Uh, In any event, well over 600 people have been diagnosed with COVID-19 in that uh, county alone coming out of that one Um, uh, food processing plant. The remaining states uh, without stay-at-home orders, North Dakota, Utah, and Wyoming, each saw an increase in cases, but it was more in line with uh, some of the other places that do have stay-at-home orders around the country. And all of those numbers may very well undercount the total cases because we continue months into this thing to have a persistent lack of testing across the entire country. And yet we are opening up states again. Are we crazy? Yes, we are. This uh, trend, of course, undermines the notion uh, perpetuated by Donald Trump. This, you know, this trend of these states increasing in cases in a big way. This undermines what Trump and his Republican allies have been uh, trying to say, that uh, these restrictive social distancing measures aren't necessary in rural America, in these uh, states that I just ran through, and and, uh, that they offer a model for how to reopen the country. Trump said at Thursday's coronavirus task force briefing, for example, quote, if you look at Montana, Wyoming, North Dakota, that's a lot different than New York. It's a lot different than New Jersey, adding that there are 29 states in that ballgame of being ready to be reopened. Well, uh, that ball game, as I said, includes a 53% increase in Oklahoma, 60% in Arkansas, 74% in uh, Nebraska, 82% in Iowa, and 205% in South Dakota. Are they crazy? Yes, they are. Uh, nonetheless, Donald Trump says we have large sections of the country right now that can start thinking about opening, and apparently they're doing more than just thinking about it. Brian Kemp is actually doing it. The uh, facts and the numbers and the science suggest something very different than what Trump and uh, Fox News and the rest of them on the right seem to be saying. But, you know, Trump and Fox News have never been big on facts or numbers, or science. So here's a little bit of fresh science just in that uh, Donald Trump and Fox and the rest may wish to ignore completely right now. The first large-scale coronavirus antibody study of 3,300 people in Santa Clara County, California, found that 25 to 4.2% of those tested were positive for antibodies suggesting more people have been infected with the disease than public public health officials have counted. 
In early April, when these uh, samples were taken in this test, there were approximately 1,000 confirmed cases officially recorded by the county. But the study published on Friday estimates that 48,000 to 81,000 people in the county of 2 million could be infected. Researchers estimate there are likely 50 to 80 times more infections in the state's counties than what is currently being reported. And that's here in California, where we had the very we were the very first to lock down uh, citizens statewide with stay at home orders to try and slow the spread of the disease. And the numbers are far higher, it appears, uh, than anyone even has a sense of, once again, because of lack of testing. Widespread antibody tests have been touted by public health officials as a tool that could help governments resume business as usual, according to The Hill, though more research needs to be done on whether the presence of antibodies actually guarantees immunity from COVID-19. We don't know that. We find people with antibodies, which are in their blood, which is created in response to the disease. But does that make them absolutely immune from it? Well, we don't know. And that's one of the reasons why we have to do more testing, not just testing to determine who has COVID, but to determine who has the antibodies that might prevent COVID. But to do that, we'd have to have widespread testing for all of this. And the federal government is pretty much doing absolutely nothing to get us there. That, even while Trump is is both calling for states to open up for business and and for them to do more testing, but he's not helping to supply the resources and the test kits in order to do so. Also keep in mind, as the um, uh, the associate professor of medicine at Stanford University who led this particular study told ABC New uh, ABC News on Friday, his research also suggests that about ninety five percent of the population, is still without antibodies, which would make a system based on that data point of allowing those with antibodies to go back to work, it would make it difficult to execute because, again, 95% of the people do not have it and are still potentially exposed to the disease. Also, the ongoing lack of widespread testing makes it not just uh, difficult to execute a, uh, you know, reopen strategy, allowing those who might have the antibodies to go back to work. Uh, It makes that strategy not just difficult, but impossible and or deadly. Take your pick. Nonetheless, that's what the right wing Trump supporters egged on by Fox News and uh, some well-financed groups like the Koch Brothers Freedom Works organization, like Betsy DeVos's uh, education secretary, Betsy DeVos's uh, family up in Michigan, they're behind uh, supporting these protests that we're beginning to see. The same folks, the very same folks who who created the pretend Tea Party protests out of nowhere, they are back. And they are calling for, uh, as they organize protests around the country, uh, just throw the doors open and find out what happens. And, of course, they're doing it largely in states that are run by Democratic governors, calling on them to reopen uh, states for business, despite the threats being warned about by pretty much every public official that doing so would send the flattening curves right back up to unflattening again. Uh, By the way, if the antibodies uh, rate holds true that were found in uh, Santa Clara County, uh, California, if that holds true for other states... 
Uh, the proportion of the general population that has been exposed to COVID-19 is far higher than the currently 766,000 confirmed cases that Johns Hopkins University is now tracking and reporting, uh, along with now more than 40,000 deaths as of Monday. It would, in fact, mean that millions of Americans could have been exposed to the coronavirus and have developed antibodies, even as uh, many uh, millions more have not yet. According to the COVID tracking project, the U.S. has averaged fewer than 150,000 tests per day over the past week. Researchers at Harvard University estimate that uh, to reopen the U.S. by the middle of May, daily tests would need to be closer to 500 to 700,000 per day. Other experts argue we would need millions of tests per day. Natalie Dean, a biostatics professor at the University of Florida, uh, told Vox.com that the whole point of this social distancing is to buy us time to build up capacity to do the types of public health in interventions that we know will work. If we're not using that time to scale up testing to that level that we need it to be, we do not have an exit strategy. And when we lift things, she says, we're no better equipped than we were before. Well, we're about to get a live experiment on that in Georgia. Uh, also, uh, just in Republican governors in where South Carolina and Tennessee are announcing similar moves to loosen uh, social distancing restrictions. Desi? Yes, they're spreading the party around. The party <laughs> being, of course, coronavirus. Yeah, I was going to say they're spreading something around. Uh, all of this as the president of the United States on Friday tweeted in all caps calling for the, quote, liberation of democratically controlled states like Minnesota, Michigan and Virginia. And his supporters have, in fact, heard him. Uh, we saw health care workers in Colorado forced to clash with protesters, health care workers in their scrubs, in their PPE, in their masks. They were forced in the middle of this epidemic to clash with protesters who were demonstrating on Sunday to demand an end to Colorado's uh, statewide uh, stay-at-home order. There was dramatic video of the Denver protest that went viral when a nurse in, in full scrubs and a protective mask was captured standing in front of a woman who was protesting from her truck. It looked like Tiananmen Square. Remember that famous shot of that guy with his uh, uh, shopping bag standing in front of the tank? That's what this nurse looked like standing in front of this car, silently blocking this, this truck from moving in, in a counter-protest. The woman uh, in the car was wearing an American flag uh, T-shirt and holding a sign that read, Land of the Free, she shouted out the window to the healthcare worker, Now, I don't know if you could hear that among the honking horns as the protesters uh, were, were trying to force the healthcare workers to get out of their way. But the woman was screaming to a healthcare worker, risking his life to save people in a pandemic, quote, go to China if you want communism. That uh, healthcare worker was one of a few who tried to counteract the protest on Sunday that hundreds attended in Colorado. Hundreds, not thousands, not millions, but hundreds, and they sure have gotten a lot of, t of, of attention from it. 
in a state where over 400 people have died from coronavirus. Uh, Alexis, a Denver nurse who spoke to NBC News, uh, to their local affiliate in the city, uh, she did not provide her last name, uh, but she said the demonstrators on Sunday felt like a slap in the face to medical workers everywhere. Pretty sad sight to see during such a scary time. But to fly American flags to support your point being that it's justifiable to, to put other Americans in danger so that you can enjoy your life or that you can go back to work, it feels backwards. I feel conflicting emotions, I think. You know, it really feels like a slap in the face to medical workers. I get it. We all want to be outside. If you don't think for one second that I would rather be on a chairlift in Breckenridge, you're crazy. I, I get it. I, I don't want to be stuck in my house either. I don't think I don't think many people at all are enjoying this. That's not the point. We're having to be surrogate family members for our um, dying patients, whether or not they're COVID, because we aren't allowing visitors right now. We can't, we can't risk it. And I understand the frustration, I really do, but we, we have to fight this together. And we have to maintain that, that stance because the second we start turning on each other is the second chaos hits. And then we don't have a chance of really addressing this and fixing the problem. Oh, please, Nurse Alexa, go to China if you want communism. I guess that's the message for her. Uh, yeah, as soon as chaos, uh, as soon as we end this, chaos will come. Prepare for the chaos. The protest in Denver lasted about four hours at the state capitol. Demonstrators called uh, Colorado Governor Jared Polis, who, you know, happens to also be a Democrat, called him a tyrant demanded an end to the stay-at-home orders, according to the Denver Post. Uh, one participant in those uh, protests, Mary Conley, told the Post that, uh, quote, death is a part of life and it's time to start living again. Yes, I guess even if it means dying and killing a whole bunch of others who may not wish to die in the bargain, Mary Conley of Denver, she wants to live. So the hell with everyone else. That uh, protest, of course, was a wave of demonstrations against the lockdown uh, orders across the country that have been encouraged by Donald Trump and his liberate tweets over the weekend. David Sirota, who's a journalist turned uh, uh, Bernie Sanders campaign advocate, uh, tweeted, Never thought I'd see protests for the right to get infected and drown to death in your own lung fluid in order to own the libs. Uh, I hope uh, I hope to have some time to open the phones uh, today at 818-985-5735 to uh, see how you guys are holding up uh, as we're in, I don't know, week four or five or so out here in California of stay-at-home orders. Uh, I'd love to hear from uh, some of the folks listening live in, in our uh, Southern California listening area, 818-985-KPFK if you'd like to check in. Uh, you'll have to line up because uh, i got to get to a guest in a moment, but... Um, I know you all have been under these stay-at-home orders pretty much as long as anyone in the country. So are you guys okay with that? Are you ready to call it off and take your chances? And are these healthcare workers uh, ruining your day? Do they need to go back to China for their communism? 
Uh, anyway, call in if you want to queue up. Uh, as I said, I got a guest to get to first uh, amid all of this. Somehow we're supposed to be holding elections again, including, by the way, next week in Ohio and in about 20 other states over the next several weeks. And how the hell are we going to do any of that safely? much less in all 50 states this November? Well, many Democrats and voting rights advocates, of course, are calling for radically expanded vote-by-mail and about $4 billion from Congress to help fund it, and quickly. Many Republicans, on the other hand, are opposed to making voting easier at all. But there are problems with both sides that we really need to discuss before heading into all of this blindly. And I I know uh, rational common sense does not always make for the best talk radio or cable news. uh, But we could really use some of that right now after all of this begins to somewhat uh, somehow spin out of control. At least that's what it feels like today. Lulu Freistat of SmartElections.us joins us next on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't touch that dial. Hey, this is Brad. If you haven't noticed by now, it's no easy feat finding facts, real facts, not alternative facts, over your public airwaves. We try to bring you real facts, truth, and clarity without fear or favor each and every day on the broadcast. But we need your help to do it. If you enjoy the show and or get something from it, please give back a bit, if you can, by visiting us at bradblog.com donate. Your support helps Desi and me continue to bring you real, independent, progressive news five days a week over your public airwaves. We simply can't do it without your help, and that help is needed more now than ever. Please stop by bradblog.com donate today to make a one-time donation or, even better, automated monthly support. It'll take you about 60 seconds, and you can rest easy knowing that we'll be here every day making sense of it all, or at least trying to. That's bradblog.com donate, and thanks. Welcome back to the broadcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. By the way, you can also tweet me during the program. I am the Brad Blog. If you want to follow and share what we do over there, or if you have any thoughts today, in case I can't get to the phones, uh, the uh, New Mexico Supreme Court uh, took the state's GOP's side in a dispute with New Mexico election officials last week over how broadly to expand mail in voting for the state's upcoming elections. Due to the pandemic, the state's primary election is scheduled for June 2. Now, along with more than a dozen other states that day, many of which had postponed earlier primary election uh, dates due to the coronavirus pandemic. The New Mexico State Supreme Court issued its order after a two hour plus hearing that was conducted over Zoom. According to the Las Cruces Sun News, 27 local clerks with the backing of New Mexico's secretary of state had sought the court's permission to essentially transform New Mexico's June 2 election into an entirely mail-in election, though in-person voting would be available on a more limited basis to those who may need it. 
The elections officials, uh, the lawyers for those election officials told the court last week, according to the Sun News, that the overhaul could not be done legislatively because calling a special session would be needed. And that would require uh, under state law that legislators physically gather to do so. And they said that uh, they were merely asking the court to interpret existing election code rather than change the law. The law, which already allows for special elections to be conducted via mail, I guess they would like the court to say, hey, this is a special election at this point. Uh, That request was initially filed unopposed, but the New Mexico Republican Party, along with the support of one of the right-wing voter fraud uh, alarmist groups in the state, filed a lawsuit to block that request, essentially to stop the election from being run as an uh, as an almost all-vote-by-mail election. The GOP claims that the mail-in voting system that the Democratic officials were seeking to implement, in which all registered voters would receive a ballot in the mail, that that was susceptible to fraud. The Republicans instead backed a system in line with New Mexico's current absentee voting practices where voters must apply for mail-in ballots before the ballots are sent to them. The court backed the Republicans' approach while adding that it would order clerks to mail the ballot applications to all voters. They would not have to request one. So there's that, at least. They won't automatically uh, send all voters an absentee ballot to vote, but they will automatically send a ballot application to all voters. That, to me, actually sounds like a reasonable middle ground in this case, in the uh, frequently swing state, though it's much more Democratic-leaning these days uh, in New Mexico. That, even as similar battles play out all across the country, with more hardline positions developing across the the nation, with Republicans more and more attempting to block the use of absentee voting any way they can in upcoming primaries and for this November's critical general elections, while you have many Democrats on the other side, along with voting rights advocates, rallying to simply send absentee ballots to all registered voters. Whether they have requested one or not, as a handful of states now currently do, like Washington State, Oregon, Colorado, those states, however, took a bunch of years in transitioning to an all-vote-by-mail system. It's not quite as easy as simply flipping a switch. Uh, As many Democrats and voting rights on the other side, along with voting rights advocates, rallying to simply send absentee ballots to all registered voters. Whether they have requested one or not, as a handful of states now currently do, like Washington State, Oregon, Colorado, those states, however, took a bunch of years in transitioning to an all-vote-by-mail system. It's not quite as easy as simply flipping a switch, uh, as many Democrats and voting rights advocates have been calling for amidst the pandemic. At the same time, as we've seen in recent weeks, many Republicans are pushing to force voters to choose between risking their lives by voting in person at crowded polling places, many of them consolidated due to a lack of poll workers willing to risk their lives to work a poll all day, or of seeing their votes suppressed if absentee ballots are not easily obtained, with well-considered and well-funded processes in place to help voters make the transition to vote by mail in order to assure that plenty of time is allowed for returning ballots and for correcting errors and, and concerns with those 
uh, vote by mail ballots after they are checked one by one for authenticity by often partisan elections officials. It's not an easy process. None of this. Few states are prepared to handle what is quickly coming their way, and all of it is often uh, turned into a strictly partisan battle, making it easier to vote on one side without assuring security protocols are in place versus making it harder to vote while risking disenfranchisement for many in the bargain. We've discussed how some of this has been playing out on uh, several recent programs over the past week. Of course, uh, Wisconsin's right-wing legislature, uh, with the help of its right-wing state Supreme Court and the stolen Republican majority on the U.S. Supreme Court, they famously forced such a dangerous election several weeks ago where tens of thousands had never received their absentee ballots in time for the U.S. Supreme Court's imposed deadline of Election Day for them to be returned to officials, so they had to risk their lives to go vote in person. Last week, while a Texas district court judge said all voters in the state may, in fact, request an absentee ballot due to fear of contracting COVID-19 at the polling place, that sounds reasonable, well, the state's Republican attorney general threatened criminal action against third parties who advise voters to do so. The AG will be uh, appealing the district court ruling to the all-Republican state Supreme Court, so you can imagine how that is going to play out. Kentucky Republicans last week in the state legislature, they overrode the Democratic governor's veto of a measure that would require strict photo ID uh, at both the uh, polling place and via absentee ballots, virtually guaranteeing that uh, both voting by mail and in-person voting will be more difficult for thousands of voters, many of whom are now likely to be disenfranchised altogether in the bargain. That, even as Republican Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell of Kentucky is most likely facing a very tight re-election battle this November against a well-funded Democratic opponent, Amy McGrath. And as AP reports today, while scrambling to address voting concerns during a pandemic, election officials across the country are eliminating polling places or scaling back opportunities for people to cast ballots in person, even though many voters will need such places. In short, despite claims from one side that absentee voting may be uh, must be made easier and attempts from the other side to make it more difficult and indeed dangerous, we could use some reason somehow amidst all of this. And in this day and age, reason is sort of the last thing that many partisan advocates uh, seem to want. Well, last week, SmartElections.us released a letter from more than 50 election integrity and voting rights advocates calling for states and counties and the federal government to proceed quickly but carefully with their reforms for absentee voting, specifically for vote by mail. In their press release announcing the uh, letter sent last week to congressional lawmakers, the group says... As the drumbeat for increased congressional funding for elections grow louder, SmartElections.us is demanding that any spending include specific accountability language to to ensure that funds are spent as intended and where most needed. 
In their open letter, Smart Elections and over 50 other election protection groups and election integrity experts warn that flooding election administrators with a tsunami of funding without careful public oversight could actually do more harm than good. They say their latest call for uh, the latest call for increased spending is coming from places like California's Democratic uh, Senator uh, Kamala Harris. She proposes five billion dollars to fund elections during the pandemic. But as Smart Election notes, the last time Congress allocated close to four billion dollars for elections in 2002 with the Help America Vote Act, there was insufficient oversight. Funds were often used to purchase outdated, insecure electronic voting systems that undermined security, accuracy, reliability and confidence in our elections. We cannot afford to repeat that mistake, they warn. The open letter was written with the guidance of uh, current and former election officials and election security and auditing experts. It acknowledges that states, yes, do need more resources and that the use of absentee ballot voting and vote by mail must be increased uh, to address health concerns. But the advocates urge that critical requirements be attached to federal election funding. For example, require that an expansion of absentee ballot voting and vote by mail include the ability to track requested and voted ballots. That seems reasonable. That we need secure, monitored drop boxes where mail-in ballots can be delivered personally. Notifications if if voted uh, ballots have been rejected for some reason and the ability to cure the rejection remotely. Uh, These are some reasonable uh, security uh, restrictions that ought to be attached, they argue, to any money that is given to states rather than Throw out, you know, four billion, five billion to the states and say, go for it. Use this to proper introduction. There we go. Uh, Lulu, she is an Emmy Award winning and Edward R. Murrow Award winning journalist and documentary filmmaker who has made a number of films, full and short length, on the woeful state of U.S. electronic voting systems. She is now the co founder of SmartElections.us, which describes itself as a nonpartisan project dedicated to elevating the issue of election reform to an urgent national priority. Well, I would say so. And if it wasn't before, it certainly should be now. Welcome back to the broadcast, Lulu Freistat. Hi, Brad. How are you? I'm I'm hanging in there. Actually, how are you? I know you have been uh, getting over the COVID virus. It's true. My husband and I both have about sense of all of this very quickly amid the pandemic and the chaos accompanying it is our old friend Lulu Freistat. She is, uh, where's my, uh, I've lost my papers. Speaking of chaos, I've already lost my papers here. And get through it, and we're getting better now, and our energy's coming back. We're very, very grateful. I'm glad to hear it. Uh, very glad to hear it, Lulu. Uh, and of course, I'm selfishly glad to hear that you're feeling better because it means you're out there trying to raise hell and raise uh, awareness about uh, these concerns. Your your letter to lawmakers is uh, headlined, election funding with no oversight will be disastrous. Uh, as many Democrats uh, in Congress are now pushing to include emergency funding for elections, um, for this year's, well, whatever we call these things, uh, anywhere, you know, for elections, anywhere between two and five billion dollars. What are the disasters that you and the other election integrity folks are most concerned about at this point? I think the biggest concern, which you mentioned, is that the 
funds were being misspent for hackable electronic voting equipment. That is what we saw happen in 2002. And as soon as I saw these numbers, I, I could... I think I felt my blood pressure go up. I felt like the hair start to go up on the back of my neck. These were just such a such a similar scenario as what we had happen in the early 2000s. We had that disastrous election in Florida in 2000 where the country just watched our elections melt down publicly and no one knew who was going to be president for weeks and everyone was horrified. And so there was this big push, this sense of emergency and urgency that, oh, my God, we just got to do something. Mm -hmm. And the something that we did nationally was that Congress spent a little less than $4 billion and allocated funds to the states to, quote, unquote, improve their elections. But what happened, as you and I both know, is that those funds really were hijacked almost immediately by vendors and I'd have to say unscrupulous vendors mm -hmm. who sold very outdated equipment to the states. Much of that equipment was running on uh, on platforms, on computer platforms that even at that time mm -hmm. were outdated mm -hmm. and then had to wind up lasting 10, 15 years. The equipment was highly hackable. And at the end of the day, we spent $4 billion and what we got was a, a nightmare that we spent the last decade and a half trying to dig our way out of. So the last thing that we need right now is for Congress to flood these states with unrestricted funding for their elections. Um, what, what happens, as you and I both know, when these large amounts of money come through, they really attract large vendors who might otherwise not be paying attention to small you know, counties' mm -hmm. budgets all of a sudden swoop down and wine and dine these election officials, develop cozy relationships with them. Many of these election administrators do not have a lot of technical expertise. Some of them don't even have an IT staff. And unfortunately, they wind up making some pretty bad decisions. And so that's why we wrote this letter, uh, as, a, as you said, with the advice of experts and advocates. And we spent a lot of time going through the details and saying, if we're going to give this money to the states, what do we need to do to make sure that the money is well spent? Mm -hmm. And we've crafted a very detailed letter. Now, not everyone wants to plow through a, you know, a detailed letter, but one thing I, we have done, and we literally just put this up now, just, uh, uh, you know, for your listeners, mm -hmm. <laughs> and honor your listeners, because I know they always want to know, what can I do? Thank you. So we put up a, yeah, we put up a, um, a click link on the front page of our website. So mm -hmm. all you need to do right now is go to smartelections.us, and the very first thing there, you know, it's a link to our letter that we've written, but it also says, write your own letter, and it clicks you over to a letter that's pretty much pre-built for you that you can send to your elected officials and let them know that you really want for these this funding to come with restrictions. And I, I try to stay away from that word mandate because mm -hmm. I know the Republicans don't like it. But we're saying restrictions or requirements 
on how the funds can be spent and public oversight. Those are the things that we think are so necessary. And, uh, I mean, here's the problem. Uh, I mean, you, you call for a lot of common sense, as you call them, restrictions. For example, allow voters to request an absentee ballot in person, electronically, via fax, or through standard mail, with no requirement for a witness or notarized signature, which makes sense. We saw, for example, in uh, in Wisconsin, some voters couldn't vote uh, because uh, Wisconsin requires a, a, a witness on their absentee ballot, and you have a lot of uh, people who are home alone. They don't have access to a witness to sign their ballot. Many of them were disenfranchised. So putting some of these measures in place, these restrictions saying, yes, you can do this, but you must remove the requirement for a witness signature. Uh, These things make common sense, it seems to me. And yet we're talking about uh, releasing four or five billion dollars to states and counties across the country. With, you know, if it's anything like the 400 million, I think, that was included in the CARES Act, it has no restrictions at all, no requirements at all. It just gives out money. They can buy new touchscreens. They can uh, further enforce these disenfranchising uh, photo ID laws. Uh, And at the same time, Lulu... Uh, This letter talks to a lot of the election integrity advocates who are saying, well, throw the doors open, uh, throw out a ballot, send a ballot to everyone, send a ballot to every registered voter. What's wrong with what's wrong with doing that, uh, uh, Lulu, in order to uh, enfranchise people in the middle of a pandemic? Send them a ballot. What's the problem? What's the concern? The concern is that not all states are ready to do that. One of the things that happened with this letter, I spent about two weeks pouring over a lot of detailed policy papers from organizations like Common Cause or the Brennan Center, Mm -hmm. um, also talking to people who were intimately involved in in Colorado in their gradual transition to vote by mail. So what I learned is that every state really is at a very different place with this. So, for example, in New York... We are just not set up to move to a vote-by-mail system. We have, for one thing, very poor addresses on registered voters. Mm. The lists are just not up to date. So if you start sending a a ballot to each one of of the people on the addresses, if each one of the addresses on our registered voter list, you're going to send probably thousands of ballots to incorrect addresses. So one, people aren't going to get their ballots, and two, you're going to have just this flood of ballots out there kind of floating around that could be potentially misappropriated and used for fraud. And and so, frankly, yeah. and whether they are used for fraud or not, it allows those who want to pretend they were used for fraud, it allow, you know, the Republicans to uh, claim that, oh, there's all kinds of fraudulent ballots. So it's something that actually seems... Uh, like it won't ultimately help the Democrats' case to do that. Now, I mentioned, Lulu, the uh, what New Mexico Supreme Court mandated in that state where the uh, county election officials wanted to mail a ballot to every registered voter, but the Republicans opposed that. Uh, and the compromise that was sort of forced on the state by the state Supreme Court is to mail an absentee ballot application to every registered voter. Is that something that uh, smart elections would see as a reasonable accommodation? You know, it really depends on how up-to-date those voter registration lists are. Mm-hmm. If the lists are really bad, as they are 
as I've been told they are here in New York, even by election officials, then that's actually not going to be that helpful. That's why what we recommended was to make that application process as easy as possible. So anybody who wants to can go online, can send a fax, can go in person, can... Mm -hmm you know, and actually go through the traditional method of sending by mail, that it just becomes easy for voters to make that request and get the ballot back. But if what we really said overall in the letter is that states are going to have to decide this one by one and and try to decide it intelligently based on the resources they have available and where are they at. What, what, mm-hmm. what I was told by people who were involved, for example, in Colorado, is that it took years and years for Colorado to get to the place they are now. They spent years updating their registration list, thinking through these different details. So one of the things that we did in our letter was to try to really give states a little wiggle room, you know, where mm-hmm. are they at in the process, but make sure that they are trying to maximize participation. Mm-hmm. That's one of the key things that we're looking for. And that they're putting protections in place. Those protections include things like chain of custody, which mm-hmm. is so important when you have these um, so many mail-in ballots. What is the chain of custody for the ballots? What is the chain of custody for, you know, the various technology? Are those ballots being counted by scanners and, the you know, the drives and all those scanners? Mm-hmm get counted on. There's there's many different parts of the process that you need a lot of oversight for, and the public needs to be involved. They need to yep. have the opportunity to watch signature verification, to participate if there are discrepancies and the resolution of those discrepancies. Voters need to have the opportunity to cure a ballot rejection. Mm-hmm. That means that if I vote and they and I get a notice and you, ha- and, and you have to set it up so that I get a notice yeah. that my ballot has been rejected, right? So you have to notify voters if there's been a rejection of their ballot. And then the voter has to have the opportunity to what's called cure that rejection, mm-hmm. to go in and say, hey, this is my signature. I know it changed a little bit, but that's how I sign now, not, you know, mm-hmm. 10 years ago when I registered. And that so could, you and need to make sure that these protections are in place, and that's what our letter tries to do, step by step. We did this with the advice of advocates and experts, and I will say that over 40 election protection groups, mm-hmm. experts, advocates, election officials signed on to our letter. It's important, and, and it's important for people to understand this, because uh, there is no—nobody is in charge here, people. We are in charge So if you were worried before, you should be really worried now because we're in charge. There is nobody driving this ship. This means the public needs to educate themselves so that uh, you can advocate in your own town, your own jurisdiction, your own county, your own state for these various things. And things like uh, that Lulu mentioned, you know, being able to cure your ballot uh, to come on in and say, yes, that is my ballot. I signed it. That's my uh, signature. Uh, please count it. Uh, this is something that can happen for several days after the election. There is no reason to throw out a ballot when they, uh, you know, if it's postmarked, let's say, by Election Day, they finally get around to reviewing it in the days following the election and they have a question about the signature, call in the person. 
ask them if this is their ballot or not in some fashion or another. Uh, And, you know, even though Election Day is over, you're not going to change the ballot. You're just going to change whether that's counted or not. So there's a bunch of stuff like that that you can educate yourself with simply by reading this uh, very clear, very easy to understand letter. It's about a page and a half. It's got some great bullet points. You can find it at uh, smartelections.com smartelections.us. Lulu, I wanted to bring you on. We've had you on many times over the years, but your advocacy here strikes me as some much-needed common sense right now. And I realize that is in short supply in this country, well, for quite a while, but certainly on talk radio and cable news. So last question before I let you go, Lulu, Uh, these uh, large groups, you mentioned uh, Brennan Center, um, Common Cause and so forth. Are they just saying, hey, give money uh, to the states and let them send out ballots? Or or are they also including some much needed uh, uh, security issues with their advocacy? There is not enough concern about Uh oversight. There really is very little language about oversight from most of the major groups. One place I will say that there has been a push for oversight is with Senator Klobuchar and Senator Wyden's office, Mm -hmm. and they have sponsored a bill. And uh, I'm going to be going through, there's there's a few bills out now, the Klobuchar-Wyden bill, Senator Warren has a bill, and Senator Harris all have bills. And we're going to be trying to go through and make some comparisons of those bills. In general, Senators Klobuchar and Wyden tend to be pretty good about restricting how the monies can be spent. Mm -hmm. And uh, I have not gone through the Harris bill, but I was told that there are also some, you know, some restrictions there. So that's what we're looking for. And we'll try to get a more detailed analysis of of what the restrictions are. The big groups, as far as I can tell, are mostly just pushing for funding. And if you're a member of one of these groups, of Common Cause or Stand Up America or League for Women Voters or the Leadership Conference on Civil and Human Rights, please go to your leadership and say, hey, can we be more specific about the requirements that we're asking for? Look at this election uh, uh, expert. Look at this letter from experts that Smart Elections uh, has drafted. Can we sign on to this? Can we include these provisions? Uh, and I will shout out two other provisions that Jenny Cohn, uh, who is an mm-hmm. advocate that helped draft the letter, is very um, insistent that we need to be pushing. And one is we need funding to save the post office, mm-hmm. that we're going to have a hard time having a vote-by-mail election if we don't save the post office. Yep. Uh, and also this concern about touch screens and that electronic equipment can be hacked also extends to our electronic poll books. And that it's very important that we use paper poll books when we can now, especially because of this, uh, you know, these um, mm-hmm. p- the potential for the communication of disease, uh, and also just for security reasons that we need to have those paperbacks up on the electronic poll books. Yep. Ask for pub demand public oversight of all of this. Lulu, I got to get out. Thank you for your good work once again on this. Uh, get more information on the letter and on that uh, town hall she was talking about via smartelections.us. Lulu Freistat uh, is uh, an award winning journalist and uh, documentary filmmaker, now turned advocate and co founder of smartelections.us. Uh, thank you, Lulu. Glad you're feeling better. I suspect we'll be talking to you again soon. 
I appreciate it, Brad. Thank you. People can follow me at Lulu Freiscott on Twitter, and please sign up to get our email blast on our website. Thank you so much for having me on. You bet. Thank you. All right, quick break, and we're back with uh, some of your calls at 818-985-5735, 818-985-KPFK. I'm Brad Friedman, and this is your Bradcast. What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. At the Bradcast, we do our best to bring you accurate news and analysis on the issues that actually matter. And we do it all independently, without corporate or political influence. But we can't do it without you, now more than ever. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Welcome back. It's the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Our phone number is 818-985-5735. As usual, running late. Uh, and uh, as usual, I'll thank the state of Georgia for that, uh, since they are uh, announcing that, hey, yeah, COVID is over. Coronavirus, no worries. Opening up the barbershops, opening up the salons, the restaurants, the movies. Why worry? Uh, well, I'll just say this much. Uh, our current stay-at-home orders are wildly popular. Uh, the, the public is wildly in favor in poll after poll of keeping things shut down until we have a plan to get out of it. But for some reason, without much of a plan to get out of it, uh, Republican governors are beginning to open up their states. Republicans uh, who, are, who are being egged on by Donald Trump and Fox News and the Tea Party uh, to hold protest in Democratic states are demanding uh, liberation from the uh, tyrants who who run those states. In other words, you know, Democratic governors. How do you feel about it? How are you holding up after all these weeks? 818-985-5735. Let's go to Keith in Moreno Valley. Hey, Keith, welcome to the broadcast, sir. Hey, how are you doing this afternoon? Hanging in there? Fantastic. Um, I'm a nurse practitioner of about three years. I'm an RN of 13 years. I've worked all kinds of places, ER, med surge, heart, ICU uh, oncology, um, and I also teach for the past 10 years as an adjunct faculty nursing. Mm-hmm. So um, essentially, my, my comment is, it's not, I, I believe, in my humble opinion, I try to have the optimistic perspective of our opposition. I don't think it's so much as they simply want to go and frolic and have fun. I think that it's the fact that our government has failed to provide for our citizens. I mean, we should have debt debt suspended we should definitely have food stipends. We should have rent, rent and mortgage completely suspended during this duration. Mm-hmm. And we should be also providing additional finances um, or economic stipends so people can have their basic needs met. If they have their basic needs met, I don't think they'd be so anxious and wary of what's going on and have to look to conspiracy theories um, as opposed to just being compliant. You mm-hmm. can't be compliant when you're living in the terror dome known as the United States. This is a horrific capitalistic um, nation, and it's a predatory capitalism that has no mercy. We need some mercy during these times of, of, of great peril. 
And uh, that's my take on it. Thank you, Keith. I appreciate your reasonable thought. And uh, you're hanging on uh, there for uh, quite a while. Let me go to Roger in Minneapolis, uh, who we've been uh, hearing from uh, from time to time over the past month or so. How are you doing, Roger? Going into week six of isolation here, Brad, Keith was right on in very many ways. But I'll just jump to my point. Good. I have been watching this now. Um, and uh, I have reached the conclusion that it is the intention of the Trump administration to make this situation as devastating as possible so that the vulture capitalists can steal us blind and so that in all of the confusion they can steal the election. Mm. That is what they are up to. They have no intention of minimizing the damage of this, and they'll figure out how to pin the tail on the donkey um, someone else's donkey, I tell you. <laughs> yeah. Thank you, Roger. Excellent point. Uh, of course, I, I think the people behind what is going on uh, may be doing that. I don't think Donald Trump understands any of it. I think he has no real goddamn clue about what is going on at all, unless it is something that the, he has been told on Fox News. And as you know, on Fox News, uh, they just spew a bunch of BS. Uh, let's go to Mike in L.A. Uh, Mike, uh, welcome to the broadcast, sir. Uh, I'm up against the clock here, but your thoughts? You doing okay after week four, five, six, whatever we're at? Yeah, a preview of my picket sign for the next anti-public health demo pictured me in a white lab suit, uh, embroidered Trump University and a Trump mask, and I'm holding a sign that says, Free Typhoid Mary, I need a date. Free typhoid Mary. I need a date. Well, uh, I think the uh, typhoid Mary is going to be free. And I hope people, uh, we we got some new masks over the weekend. I want to put some uh, great big letters with, uh, there's a black mask, but big white letters on the mask that says V-O-T-E. Vote. Just a little billboard on my face. You're welcome, America. We got to get out. My thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen, to my board op, Keanu Williams today, to my guest, Lulu Freistadt of smartelections.us, and to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. It is always appreciated. It is always an honor. Thank you. Uh, if you missed any portion of today's show, download it anytime for free at bradblog.com. That is thanks to those of you who support our work at bradblog.com slash donate. Drop me email if you like. I am bradcast at bradblog.com. And on the Facebooks and the Twitters, I am simply the Brad Blog. That's it. Until we meet again tomorrow, I hope. I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. Good luck, world.